but uh, it turned out it's just about the right temperature. They have some guests staying over for a couple days, and they have a dog out in the backyard, so I had to shut the window over there to stop the barking from coming in as much. She's a little, uh, I think, nervous at being here. Anyway, <clears throat> that aside, here's something more serious. Uh, Sharon Anders requests prayers for her eyes. Uh, they've been hurting. Uh, she, as you all know, I'm sure, she's legally blind, macular degeneration, and I don't know what all problems she has, but she can just barely see it all to get around. And uh, now it's just not that she can't see, but she also, they are hurting, uh, pain in her eyes. And that certainly can't be uh, a pleasant thing. So she asked for our prayers on that. And also, this morning even, she dropped a scissors on her leg, and it bled quite a lot. So she's asking for a prayer for that as well, that, that that heal up properly and that she be okay on that. So let's keep Sharon in our prayers, our thoughts. <clears throat> Seems like we need to pray for everybody. We're getting old. All, everybody's getting old and decrepit across the nation, here and there, with our our people. But God said it would be this way. So... Uh, hey, it's just a prophecy fulfilled. <laughs> we are what we are, and we are when we are where we are. And uh, it all fits the Scripture. So, not a problem, but we need to pray for His mercy and uh, His sustaining of us so that all these things come to pass before the flesh fail before Him. As I've said many times, as we've <laughs> gotten older and older, <clears throat> uh, on a really positive note, uh, next Sabbath, next weekly Sabbath is the Feast of Trumpets, signaling the beginning of the fall holy days, festival season. So next Sabbath, uh, Feast of Trumpets. We'll go ahead and have our uh, service at the regular time at 1 o'clock, uh, followed by a potluck on, uh, on the Feast of Trumpets next Sabbath. And if, I think most of you have a calendar, but uh, right after the Feast of Trumpets, on the 1st of October, comes the fast of the uh, seventh month, followed on Friday, just three days later, uh, the Day of Atonement. No, 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 wait a minute. Atonement's on the 8th. I'm sorry. I had that circle for another reason. Atonement's the 8th, uh, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, of course, starts on the 13th. So, Trumpets, Atonement, and then the feast. You got what? Oh, oh! I, I was looking at my calendar thing here. Wrong. Yeah, it's a double Sabbath. Sabbath after Sabbath. I'm sorry. I'm glad somebody's paying attention. Yeah, next Sunday is the Feast of Trumpets. Not, uh, not next Sabbath. It's back-to-back Sabbaths. They mean it's on the calendar. Yeah, well, it should be. Yeah. 27th is the weekly Sabbath. The next day is Trumpets. I have it marked here. I, had, I wasn't looking on the next line. What? True. Didn't I say it that way? Maybe we'll just cancel today. <clears throat> yeah, the Sabbath is the 28th and trumpets is on Sunday. I said that. Whatever I said, it was right or wrong. Anyway, next weekend is filled up. Saturday and Sunday. Back-to-back Sabbaths, not double Sabbath. Okay, did we finally get that straight? Well, you had it straight. Did I get it straight? I think so. Let's see if I can do a little better with something else here. Some light on the subject.
Well, last week we asked some questions at the beginning about what the work is and doing God's work. And I started into some scriptures about the work or the works of God. And I want to continue along those lines today and add some things to it because it is very, very important that we understand His works of old and His works now and in the near future. Uh, Very, very important. Uh, And I think we're going to see that it is personally very important that we understand some of the things that I want to bring to you over the next sermon or two or three or however long this goes. But uh, let's go back to the book of Psalms where we left off last week and pick up just a few more here. Uh, Psalm 111, and I'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, Praise you the Eternal. I will praise the Eternal with my whole heart. I think I may have closed with this last week, uh, but let's look at it. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So, uh, I think as I said, Jeremiah echoes this and says that we are to turn to God with our whole heart here at the end. And then He will turn to us. Now, we've been reading those scriptures about how He will turn His face away and then how He will turn it back to us and smile on us in quite a few of the prophecies. And that's what Jeremiah is talking about, where he says, if we will turn, then He will turn to us. Now, in turning to Him we have to remember that He is working His salvation in us. We cannot work our own salvation. We cannot change ourselves to spirit. We cannot issue the order that we be in the kingdom of God or be part of the bride of Christ. That's beyond us. What we can do is pray that He give us help and strength and courage and love and faith and hope to endure to the end And he count us worthy, not only of physical safety at the end here, but of spiritual safety for eternity. So, we can't do it without him. He says, work it out with fear and trembling. And when you're afraid, enough that you tremble, then you go to him for help. Because you don't work it out with each other. You don't work it out with just yourself. You don't work it out with the devil either. The only one that can help you attain salvation is the Father and the Son. So, what do we want more than anything? We don't want to die. We don't want to be burned up. We want to live forever in peace and happiness and security. And the only way that's going to come is if we turn to the one who can give it uh, with our whole heart. He loves wholeheartedness. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And I think that's one of the things about David that God appreciated so much was that he was a man who did things with all his strength, energy, and whatever... uh, He was and had. If he was going to war, he went to war mightily. If he was praying, he prayed mightily before his son died. Uh, He was not a half-hearted person. And indeed, that is one of the primary and key things that God calls us to task about here at the end time in the book of Revelation chapter 3, is being lukewarm and half-hearted. And he can't stand that condition. He'd rather we were cold than lukewarm. Uh, So, when he says this, David means it. When he says, I will praise the eternal with my whole heart, he was that kind of person. Whatever his hand found to do, he did it with his might. Nothing was done halfway. And that is one of the things that 
God is all about. God doesn't do things halfway. Uh, I'm glad he didn't, when he designed us, I'm glad he didn't do a halfway job. He figured it all out, got it all perfect, and then made it. He didn't, oh, oops, I forgot to give him a head, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, he had it done right. And that's what he wants from us, is that we seek him with our whole heart, and then we'll find him, and he will turn to us. But he goes on in verse 2. The works of the eternal are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Now, Paul tells us to look to the creation to see God. And here David puts it a little differently. He says, they're great works, and they have to be sought out. You have to go there. You have to look at, you have to consider, to think about all the things that God has done in this work that he has started. Let's understand that there isn't much going on out there in the universe right now, right? There's been a lot of destruction. There's an awful lot of space out there. There are a lot of damaged uh, planets and asteroids and all kinds of things floating around. But there's no uh, real work being done out there. God's focus is on this earth and what he is doing here. Satan's focus is on what is happening here. There is nothing else going on anywhere out there that is any like, where like what is going on here. Now, mankind is searching out there all the time, trying to put things together and talking about flying saucers and all this kind of thing with beings from other planets. Well, in one way they're right, they just don't understand what it's all about. And what they're seeing is demonism. And Satan and his demons do have the capacity to fly through the universe. And... They do show up at times in mysterious ways. But their focus is here. And Satan goes from here, back and forth, to God's throne in the north, on a regular basis, probably daily, to accuse you and me. See, we are his greatest focus. Satan is focused on you and me. He wants to stop the work of God within us. And God wants it to continue. So, He calls on the blood of Christ to remove the sin that Satan brings before Him daily. That is His biggest deal. He, he's already got the world in His pocket, okay? He doesn't have to go out and deceive the world. He already did that. Now, God has removed the scales from a few people's eyes and shown them the truth of what His work really is. And it is those that Satan hates the worst. The rest He has in the palm of His hand. It's you and me He's concerned about. Because we're the ones that God is working salvation through now. The others will have their time in the great white throne judgment. But now, the focus is on you and me. God's and Satan's. That's what we're up against. Our, our warfare is not physical. It's against principalities and powers of the air, with Satan and his demons. And we need to be aware of that and what Satan is trying to work in us, we need to be aware of. He has many devices he uses, all kinds of ways of tempting, all kinds of ways of uh, seducing us to various sins. He's very good at it. Witness the Garden of Eden and how quickly Adam and Eve turned from righteousness to sin, just like that. And he does that with human beings at his own will. He has that kind of power. Now, we have a greater power, and that's where 
David is telling us to look, to seek out the works of the eternal, uh, those who have pleasure in them. Because that's one way we keep our sanity and one way we avoid Satan is by admiring the things that God has done. Now, virtually everything you enjoy on this earth was created by God. All the things that you ought to enjoy. Whether it be food or drink or air or marriage or various kinds of pleasures we might have here on the earth. We go out on the lakes. We go up in the mountains. We go to God's creation to for recreation. Only so many recognize God in all that. They're there to have fun. We're there to appreciate what God has done. So that's what he tells us to do, is to take pleasure in the things that God has made, because that's how we see Him. I cannot, in my mind, picture Him. Sun shining in its glory. Uh, someone in the same shape that a man is. Has arms, legs, teeth, eyes, nose. He mentions all those things that he has. So he's shaped like us. He made us like him. And we can see him in the incredible creation of a human being. Male and female. So he tells us to remember that. And then we can remember him. Now, the things that man has made aren't as wonderful. In fact, I tend to avoid most of the things that man has made. God hates cities. He says, woe to him that builds city to city, house to house, and even field to field. That we need space. We shouldn't be jammed together. So God hates cities. Satan is pulling people away from the countryside that God made into the cities that man has made. He's been doing that for a long time, and he's doing it right here in this country, where small farms are being destroyed and people are being forced to go to the cities to get a job in order to eat. And what are the cities becoming? Third world. San Francisco now has... Many, many, many homeless, and so do other, other, other cities. L.A. has been in the news quite a bit about the homeless. Hundreds, thousands of people who have no place to go, no job, living on the street. And their bathroom is the street. Uh, their food is the dumpsters on the street. Is there anything pretty about this? No. You look at what... God made, and it's beautiful. You look what man has done to it, and it's truly ugly. I've traveled many, many countries around the world in my lifetime. And you know what I do as soon as I get there? I get out of the city that I landed in just as fast as I can go. <laughs> I don't need to see its sights. I don't need to see its sounds. I just need to get through its traffic and get out of there. I remember years ago when I stopped in Johannesburg and Frank Nelty wanted to take me to downtown Johannesburg and see where the church offices of God's church used to be. Now, why did I care where the church used to have offices in Johannesburg? I guess he thought I would be impressed with the history and all that stuff because he was there and saw all that stuff. I could have cared less. And if they'd ever assigned me to Johannesburg, I would have been a very sad boy. I says, isn't there a game park or something around here we could go to instead? I want it out of there. Now, the, the works of Satan and the works of men should not impress us that much. I hate New York City. People go there, oh, i just got to go to New York and see all the wonderful things. Well, I was there 
one time and saw a few of those sites. And ever since, I've gotten on a plane and gotten out of there as quickly as I can. If I have to take a bus from LaGuardia down to New Jersey to catch a flight, I hate it. Just hate it. We look at the works of the Eternal and seek them out. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonderful works to be remembered. How often does the Bible go back and rehearse the past works of God? Uh, Moses did it in the first five books. And then in the Psalms, David goes back and rehearses the various things that God did through men in history. Not just his works that he did alone, such as the creation, but the works which he did through men. And the other prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, do the same thing. You get into the New Testament, and there are many references back to both the creation, which was a work only of God, and the various works of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and uh, Job, and Noah, and so on, are rehearsed quite frequently in the New Testament. So what he's telling us to remember all his works. The Eternal is gracious and full of compassion. How many times can you look back and see where he has delivered both individuals and the nation, even though they didn't deserve it? How many times were they delivered? And those who tried to destroy any work that God was doing ran into serious problems. Remember Korah and Abiram? They ran into serious problems when they tried to interfere with the work that God was doing through Moses. Even his own brother and sister tried to interfere and say, well, God can speak through us too. It's not just Moses. He's just our brother. It's just Brother Moses. So they crossed him. And what did God do? Leprosy is not much fun. Whatever work God is doing, you had better be careful. Ananias and Sapphira went against what the apostles had asked. And they both got drug out by the back of the neck, or by the feet, because they were interfering with what the disciples were trying to accomplish. Now, God was behind and with that work. And that was people that were associated with them, who were doing their thing instead of what God wanted done. Now, did God let outsiders sometimes intervene with the work that he was doing? Yes, he did. And I can show you that in the past. I can show you that in the modern era, where the state of California came in and tried to destroy a work that God was doing. And they came close, but he saved that work out of it, and it finished doing what God had asked it to do. So we're to remember his works, and remember that he is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He never forgets the promises he's made to us. Isaiah puts it, can a woman forget her sucking child? No, she won't forget her baby. She goes in, takes care of it several times a day or all day long. And he will never forget. He has showed his people the power of his works, that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. Now, this gives us some timeline and insight into the works of God, you can go back and rehearse various works he has done, but underneath all that, that David was writing 2,000 years nearly before Christ came, well, more like a 1,000, 
He says here, and this is a prophecy, that God is going to give his people the heritage of the heathen. Has that been done yet? No. The heathen inherited everything except where God gave Israel the promised land. And he is going to give us what? The whole earth. His kingdom will be worldwide, and we will rule the earth with him. So we'll be given the whole earth as a heritage, that which the heathen held. This prophecy hasn't come to pass yet. Nowhere has Israel ruled the whole earth and controlled the whole earth. The British Empire made a start. The evil empire of the United States is trying to do so and failing and will fail. But God is going to give us, if we are faithful, the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. So he set it up, made the rules, and they are sure. You break those rules, they will break you. You keep them, and you will have peace and safety and security forevermore. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. If you don't like God's law, you wouldn't like being in his kingdom because his kingdom is going to be governed by those same rules that he's given you and me. That's why we have to get rid of the deceitfulness of human nature and our human animosity against being told what to do and what to obey and how to act. Because by nature, we don't like that. So this life is simply about casting that aside and doing it His way, so that we are worthy of receiving the heritage of the heathen and ruling with Christ a thousand years and on beyond. He sent redemption to His people, redeemed them from the earth and from Satan. He has commanded His covenant forever. Now that has to be speaking of the New Testament, our new covenant, not the old. I think quite obviously, uh, Scripture itself even says that the, old, that the old covenant waxes old as a garment and is to be discarded as an old garment. But the new covenant lasts forever. So when David writes about the covenant here, in this context, he's not talking about the old covenant that he was in the world and Israel were living under at that time. That covenant did not last forever the vestiges of it remain today. The Old Covenant is still in effect. Where? With the whole world, except for a few. The whole world is living under the terms of the Old Covenant. They will be judged by the Old Covenant and either destroyed or allowed into the second resurrection by the terms of the old covenant. He has offered the new to only a few, those whom he's called out and shown his truth to and offered the blood of Christ for. The whole world, then, is still in the deceit of Satan, except for you and me and a few others. The whole Protestant world and the Catholic world think they're under the New Covenant. No, they're not. It has not been offered to them. Has the truth been offered to them? Has the Sabbath, the holy days, been offered to them? No. They read it and they take a few things from it, but they don't believe that the commandments of God are sure and stand fast forever and ever. Those are the terms of the new covenant, as said here, forever and ever. His covenant forever. They've not been offered that. They think they have, and they're deceived, and Satan's got them in his pocket because they think they can have the new covenant without the commandments. You can't serve God without his commandments, now or ever. 
So one of his greatest works was creating the code whereby we are to live. And he laid it out in a physical way in the Old Testament with with a lot of references to what was to come. And now that it has begun to come, that is what he's working through with a few. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. When you consider what David has just said in verses 1 through 9, and you think about what's been said here, and you fear the God who has control of all the works of the creation, all the rules, all of life and death, then you're beginning to fear Him who can take life away or grant it. And that's where wisdom begins, is in understanding that. A good understanding of all they that do His commandments, His praise endures forever. So, the Christian world, so-called today, does not have a good understanding, do they? Because they think the commandments are done away with. That they don't, are no longer in effect. So they have a bad understanding. Not a good understanding. It's bad. Anytime you deny the law of God, that's bad. They call the law bad. (laughs) No, God is good and so is His law. It's holy and just and good. Even Paul said, who's the one they quote to say it's done away with. All right, let's go to chapter 143. And verse 4, he's looking here at his enemies. Uh, He's been talking about crying out to God because of his enemies and what they've done to him and so on. And here in 143, he asks God to hear his prayer in his faithfulness and his righteousness, and not enter into judgment with his servant. Uh, For in your sight shall no man living be justified. None of us can be justified based on our lives. It is only through Christ's blood and forgiveness that we can be justified. Or what does justified mean? Justified means that you are set aside to live forever. That's what justification is all about. Because if we are given the penalty of how we've lived, we would die. The wages of sin is death. But we are justified by the blood of Christ so that we can live. So justification is being given opportunity to survive. The enemy had persecuted his soul in verse 3. Verse 4, Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. We look around at our enemies. We look around at physical ones. And then we look at the spiritual enemy, Satan and his demons, and the society around us. And it can be discouraging. It can be frustrating. And the condition which we find ourselves trying to be like God and living in a world that is utterly ungodly. It's not easy. So, when he feels overwhelmed and his heart is desolate, what does he do? Verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse, or I meditate, or I think about the work of your hands. That's how David overcame fear, frustration, discouragement. He thought back on the things that God has done. The creation around us that is beautiful. The creation of human beings, which is also beautiful. But Satan's influence on human beings has made us not so beautiful. But what God created is truly beautiful. So we can look to those things and meditate on His works. 
And then we get out of our selfishness and narcissism and our uh, discouragement and doubt and fears because what were we looking at that got us discouraged? Ourselves and what is around us. That's what discourages us. What about the disciples in the boat? They were thinking about the waves. They were thinking about the boat that was rocking back and forth and might sink. They were fearing for their own lives. In other words, they were thinking about themselves. What happens if this boat turns over? What happens if the waves get stronger? What happens if, if, if? What happens to me? So their mind was on themselves. We worry, we worry, we worry about what's going to happen to us. Is so-and-so going to do this? Is so-and-so going to do that? Uh, On and on it goes. We worry about our enemies. We worry about conditions. What are we worried about? Bottom line, we're worried about ourselves. We're worried about the impact of conditions and those around us and what it will do to us. What is the impact on me? You don't really get that scared for somebody else over there in Tennessee or Florida, do you, most of the time? You're worried about what the tornado's going to do to you, or the earthquake do to you, or uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Food, Tobacco, and Drugs, or whatever it's called, might do to you. It's all about me. It's narcissism. It's selfishness. And we look at our own righteousness, and it's self-righteousness, because it has to do with self. So, what we worry about is not maybe even the things we think we're worrying about. We think we're worrying about this problem. No, we're worrying about what this problem might do to me. So, it's all selfishness. Now, yes, the waves could have gotten stronger, and the boat could have turned over, and they could have all drowned, right? And then Christ comes walking across the tempest, walking across the waves, didn't even have a boat, and he wasn't worried, because he knew his father, and he had faith, and he didn't have a boat. So he thought, well, I'll just walk out. That's the easiest way to get there, and then we don't have to worry about two boats. I'll be there. So he walked out. But there was an object lesson in his walking out there. And that is that all the things they were afraid of that were about to happen to them, they didn't need to worry about. So when they got their mind off the rocking boat and off the waves and riveted their mind on Christ walking on the water, the fear went away. Because they looked to Him to save them. So they were no longer thinking about how dangerous this is for me. They were thinking about how He can fix this. Okay? That's what faith is. He can fix this. Fear is selfishness. Worry is selfishness. Faith is trusting in He who can save the self. And it evidenced itself in Peter. He suddenly quit thinking about Peter, and he had his mind on Christ. And when he got his mind on Christ, he says, I think I'll walk out there and meet Him. And he, Peter himself, literally walked on water. Do we grasp that? As long as he had his eyes on Christ, Peter himself walked on water. He didn't jump out of the boat and sink. I don't know how many steps he took. But as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, he walked on water. One step, two steps, three steps, I don't know. 
But the minute his mind got off Christ and he said, Ooh, I'm walking on water. I can't walk on water. Didn't probably take that long, but a split second he realized, I can't do this. And he sank because he got his mind back on himself. As long as his eyes were on Christ, he could walk, even on water. Now, there is an incredible lesson for us. Is that we can do anything through Christ who strengthens us. Now, if you're going to turn to Him with your whole heart, you've got to look to the works and the things He's done in the past. And how He has taken care of things for those who would trust Him. And that's how we build faith, is by seeing the work and the works of God. And quit worrying about things that are beyond our control, but that are not beyond His control. He controls everything, including Satan. And gives Satan just as much rope as he wants to give Satan. And he's given him a lot. He's let him rule the whole world. But he's called a few out of it who have accepted his rule and rejected the rule of Satan. We don't go by the rules of the world and the rules of Satan now. We go by the rules of God. And if we do that and ask forgiveness when we fail at it, He is faithful to forgive us and to work His salvation in us. So what are we worried about? If we look at ourselves like Peter did, there's a lot to worry about. Okay? When you and I look at ourselves, honestly and in the mirror, and look at how our minds work, there's a lot to be worried about. We look at other human beings and see how their minds work, and yes, there's a lot we could worry about. But Christ said He's going to save all of Israel there in Romans 11:26, didn't He? You know what all of Israel is today? Sinners deeply. We are so deep in sin that God is going to destroy Israel Almost. Save less than 10%. That's how sinful all Israel is today. And in destroying over 90% of the people of Western Europe and America, Canada, Australia, wherever Israel is, over 90% are going to be destroyed. And in destroying them, He is going to save them. Because he says, all Israel shall be saved. So whatever he does, it's going to turn out right. Do we believe him? Do we have faith? Do we trust? Or do we worry? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If we're still worried and fearful that God can't do his work, Salvation, among other things that he's doing here on this earth right now and is about to do. If we don't believe he has the power to get it done, then we need to get out in nature or get on our knees or get out on our knees in nature and look at the works of God. Walk out. Look at the Milky Way and the stars at night. Look at the sunrise. Look at the sunset. And see the things that God has done. Look at a flower. Look at a bee working a flower or a hummingbird. Who made that? Whoever made that must have an incredible mind and an incredible power. But you don't think He can save you. You don't think He can save your neighbors because they're such sinners. Or whatever. So you worry. No. Faith does not include worry. Faith includes patient waiting for God to do His work in us. And trusting Him as we wait. Will everything 
that happens be a wonderful thing? No. He said, through much tribulation enter the kingdom. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will save them from them all. And on and on. So we're going to have much tribulation. But what difference does it make what happens to us physically? Haven't all the people of God died? Haven't many of them died horrible deaths? Read Hebrews 11. Read about the apostles and what happened to them. They died horrible deaths. What's going to happen to the end time two prophecies? Going to die a horrible death in the streets of Jerusalem in a war. What's going to happen to most of the people that have been called into God's church? Our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, people we've loved and known, people we went to church with 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, had good fellowship with. They're either dead or going to die, over 90% of them. And he's only going to save 10%, a little less actually, to come and do a work. His work. Now they have to be turning to Him with their whole heart now in order to be part of that. Now what does He tell us? He tells us to be of good courage, to fear not, to work, and uh, what's the other one? There's four. He says over and over. I, sometimes I can say them, sometimes I miss one. <coughs> to be of good courage, fear not, to work. Uh, somebody remember the other one? Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. Fear is lack of faith. Will he find faith when he comes to the earth? So all this torment we put ourselves through and all the worry that we do is fear. And it is not faith. So he tells us, fear not all these things that are coming. He said, if we will do what he says, he will protect us. Do we believe him? He says, leave the city, go dwell in the field, because the cities are going to be destroyed, and there I will deliver you. Well, you're here. You came here believing that if you did so, he would deliver you. And yet many came here and got discouraged or tired or pointed fingers and made judgments or whatever was their thing and left or stayed and rebelled. That will not go well. That will not go well for them. Those who are faithful and true and believe what God said are going to be delivered. That's all there is to it. So, don't fear. Have courage. Have faith and trust. And know that God will take care of it. Where was I here in verse uh, 5? I remember the days of old when I'm in trouble, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm discouraged, when I'm scared. I look to the things that God has done. And... He says in verse 9, Deliver me, O Eternal, from my enemies. I flee to you to hide me. God is our refuge. He's where we go for protection, to hide ourselves with our Father and His Son, whom we can't see, but who has His angels about us, cherishes the fire around us, says He'll be a wall of fire around us at the end there in Zechariah. He'll take care of us. And he says in verse 12, Of your mercy cut off my enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul, for I am your servant. Hasn't he told us in Revelation 12 that when Satan sends an army after his people, when they flee to Zion, that he will drown them, that they will die? That's what he promises us. What did he do with ancient Israel? Their armies came after them. The armies of Pharaoh. The sea parted. They got through. 
and the Egyptians drowned, or the Mitzrayimites. He took care of it. What he did in the past, he promises in Revelation 12, he's going to do in the future. What do we worry about? We worry because we're physical and we're human and we have our minds on ourselves. Worry is extreme narcissism. Self is what it is. So get your eyes on God. Get your eyes on Christ and relieve yourself of all that worry that you do, all that fear that you have. It's what David's doing right here. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. headed, why was I thinking Lamentations? I'll find it here in a minute. Ecclesiastes 3. Verse 10, I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be worked over or exercised in it or put through it. He has made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. There's a song, Everything is Beautiful in Its Own Way, that comes to mind. Probably this verse inspired that. But God has made everything beautiful. We look around and see what He's made, and oh, that's beautiful. Well, so, what do we worry for? Everything he's made is beautiful in its time. Even we are going to be beautiful in the right time. We're not so beautiful yet, but we will be. So, people see only the world around them. You look at people today, your friends, your relatives, people you know, people you observe and see. They're all wrapped up in their own little world, aren't they? Their job, their school, their recreation, their toys. That's what their thoughts are on. That's what they do. And they aren't figuring out anything about what's about to happen to the world. They're not figuring anything out about the plan of salvation of God, for sure. They can't figure out why we're here. They don't know. The churches don't know why we're here. They think we're going to die and go to heaven or hell. Now, is that the work of God? That you would burn forever and ever and ever? God says He's love throughout the Scriptures. But He's kind, He's patient, He's merciful, He's love. And can you even begin to put that together with burning in hell forever and ever? And you know what most of the Protestants teach their people? That the whole world's going to hell. Everybody that doesn't say, I love Jesus, is going to hell. And even their congregation that says they love Jesus is probably going to go to hell. <clears throat> so they preach hellfire and brimstone, a lot of them, <coughs> week in and week out, with fear religion. It's not that they're offered something beautiful for the future. They're offered hell if they don't do what a preacher wants them to do. That's the motivation. It's a fear motivation. I'm afraid I'll go to hell. So I'll put my dollar in the collection box and come to the potluck and say Jesus a lot. They don't have a clue that we're here to become God. That we're here to rule the entire universe as the bride of Christ. They don't grasp it. They talk about the wedding supper sometimes, but they don't know what it's all about. Don't have a clue. They don't know how many are going to be there or what they're going to do or where it's going to happen. They just don't get it. Oh, they get bits and pieces, but they don't get the picture. 
That's what he says here. He's talking about mankind from a carnal human standpoint. That's what Ecclesiastes is written as. And he says, they just don't get the work of God. They don't know what he's doing. Doesn't They can't grasp. Isn't there a scripture that says it hasn't entered into the mind of man that which he plans to do? It hadn't entered mine. It hadn't entered yours. You were just going about the world like everybody else. And then he said to you, here's what I'm doing. Why were you born? Little booklet, about two pages really by the time you put it on eight and a half by eleven. And you said, oh, because your mind suddenly opened to something that you had never seen before or had a clue about. So people don't know the work of God. They just don't get it. So when we start talking about the work of God, we have to back up, first of all, and recognize the whole plan all the way through. That's the overall work He's doing. That the world doesn't get. Chapter 7, same book. Verse 13, Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he has made crooked? Can you straighten out something that God has made crooked? You're going to grab one of these slot canyons around here and jerk on both ends and straighten them out? (laughs) I don't think so. God put within the mind of man from the very creation of Adam and Eve the absolute crookedness that would be there. He designed it within the man of mind of man so that as soon as man was tempted, he went crooked. And God knew that that would happen. He knew as soon as he sicked at, uh, Satan on Adam and Eve what they would do. So God made man's mind crooked. It was designed that way. So that it could be overcome and that we could become straight once more and be in his kingdom. Satan's mind was straight at first. From the time he was created, says in Isaiah and Ezekiel both, that he was wonderful. His mind was straight and good and beautiful and loved God. And then, of his own accord, he let vanity and ego and self enter in, took his eyes off the Father, like Peter did in the boat and the disciples, and went crooked. And he's been crooked ever since. He made man to be crooked. But God designed that in us. And now he's told us, if by my Spirit... You'll get rid of your crookedness and become straight. I'll give you eternal life. He's guarding against what happened with Satan happening with you and me. He will not give any of us eternal life until he is convinced we will be faithful forevermore and never rebel against him. Now that's what you and I need to be proving to God day by day, is I will be faithful to you, true to you, in every way, forevermore, and I'm working on proving it to you today. Because that's all we have to convince God of, isn't it? That's all you have to do, is convince Him that you will be faithful to Him forever. Then he will feel free to give you eternal life because he knows you won't go the way of Satan. So he's put you down here right in the middle of the way of Satan to see if you'll continue in the way of Satan or if you will grow and overcome and get away from that and prove that even under these dire circumstances, You will be faithful to Him, to His rules, to His way. 
Fortunately, he's merciful and kind and loving, or we would all be dead long ago. He's giving us space to repent, to change, to be different, and prove our faithfulness. He is very sensitive about Satan and one-third of the angels rebelling against him. Very sensitive about that. And he doesn't want any more of that forevermore in his kingdom. So he's going to bind Satan and those demons where they cannot influence anyone. Now there's part of the solution to the problem. You and I are here going through a world that is influenced very heavily by Satan and by the works of men who follow Satan. So once Satan is removed and our mind is changed, we would never be unfaithful to God. But right now it's a struggle to be faithful to God, is it not? Day in, day out, bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. That's not an easy task. But somehow, some way, we have to grow enough and overcome self enough through looking at Him and what He can do in His works in us to be able to rise above our nature and Satan. As long as Peter kept his mind on Christ, his eyes on Christ, he literally walked on water. And the minute he looked at himself and conditions around him, he sank. The minute we begin to worry about stuff around us and get ourselves into a fearful situation, fear being a concern about self, we sink. And we get discouraged. And we get frustrated. Because we're looking at others their mistakes, their weaknesses, their problems, their attitudes, and how that might affect us, and we get worried. And then we sink. We go into hopelessness and sorrow and fear and worry and lack of courage, and then it affects our ability to work. Now, God wants us to be able to work. It's one of the four conditions. Fear not, be of good courage, be strong, that's the other one, and work. Be strong. You can't be strong when you're fearful. Strength and power remove fear. And strength and power come from God and faith in God and obedience to God. That's what encourages and strengthens us. He says, cast all our care on Him because He cares for us. He will do everything He can to deliver us. So what do we worry about? Ourselves and others. That's what we worry about. Yeah. Be strong and of good courage and work. Chapter 8, verse 17. Then I beheld all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yes, further, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. Now Solomon was looking at the works of God. He had seen what God had done through his father David. He had seen what God had been able to do through him and the incredible wisdom that God had given him. And he had to give God credit for that. How many people would think they could solve a problem by cutting a baby in half? How does that solve the problem? But it did. And he didn't even have to cut the baby in half. Just the threat was enough to solve the problem and find the answer. Incredible wisdom that God gave. So he says... You can look at all that has been made, but man, apart from God, will never figure out what's going on. The smartest men on earth today are trying to figure it out, and they have no clue. It's just 
not in them to know. God has to open your mind and by a miracle show you what he's doing. So the overall work of God is to turn us into God. And we need to grasp that. Now we're going to examine some of the specific works that he's done through time. And we'll get to that at at another time.